Now, dear brothers and sisters, uh, will you turn with me finally to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 13, 14, 22 through 24. We come now to the end, the last message in 1 Corinthians. And I pray that in some way God has ministered through 1 Corinthians to us and that we have learned something from his word. Now, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians, these are the final words of the Apostle Paul to this church in Corinth. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we have reminded ourselves as we have sung this morning of all your benefits, of all of your varied and many blessings showered upon us. Now we come to this final word from the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth so long ago, to these saints of God who had many struggles and many difficulties, and he has tried to help them and point out Uh, solutions to them for their difficulties. Help us, each one, we pray. If we have difficulties ourselves, to rest finally upon your word, to go no further, but to believe all that you have told us and said to us. And we thank you, Father, that we come, even ourselves, this morning, 2,000 years later, as a congregation of God's people, because we have come to worship believing that our Lord Jesus Christ has drawn us to himself. We are his. Now in adoration and praise we approach you. We thank you that you have spoken to us finally in the person of your Son. And as we read your word, we realize that you speak to us even this morning. And so we desire to hear the voice of God as we listen to your word. You are sovereign, you are good, and you are gracious and you have showered your love and affection upon us. So may we understand, Father, something of these last words of the Apostle Paul to Corinth. So bless our time together, and bless your word to us, and may the Holy Spirit move with power in our hearts through the preaching of the word. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, I think it must have been quite difficult for the Apostle Paul as he came to that final page of his parchment so long ago to write what he does and what he has said in 1 Corinthians to this church uh, at the city of Corinth. So many problems in the church, so many troubles, so many difficulties that the Apostle has felt it necessary to unfold and to deal with them, to try and give them some solution. All difficulties, apparently, which seem to have arisen when he left them. 
And now I've been at a distance from them. He has learned of their troubles and their sins and their hardships. And uh, he is now writing 1 Corinthians. And as he comes to the end, he wants to provide some word to them that will wrap it all up, that will draw it all together for them. He has dealt with their factionalism, their divisions among themselves, their, their petty squabbles and jealousies among themselves, and those things that, that self-exalt us, those things that self-promote us. That's what the Corinthians were like. And the Apostle Paul in the first opening chapters, he deals with that attitude that they had towards one another where they exalted themselves over each other. Far be it from us to experience such a thing in our day and age in our church. But the human heart is deceptive and dangerous and it's possible for us to harbor within ourselves factional ideas. I mean, they even tolerated, didn't they, in chapter 5, an open immorality that was known to everyone in the church. An immorality that the Apostle Paul says was such that even the Gentiles didn't like it. And he deals with them as he writes to them. He says to them that they have, they're unable, it would appear, to solve the problems that exist among themselves. So they go to the law courts of the city of Corinth to resolve their petty squabbles and troubles, whereas they should have been able to resolve those within the church. Chapter 6. He reminds them of, of what marriage is all about and what betrothal is all about in chapter 7. He speaks to them of the dangers of eating food that is sacrificed or offered to idols in chapters 8 and chapters 9. That there's a danger in abusing your conscience or using your conscience to be superior to someone else's. And so he writes these things to them. He talks about the difficulties that exist within a congregation as to the order of the church and, and what they should be occupied with. And he commends them and he condemns them for certain of their practices and the traditions that they have held to. He reminds them of the great subject of spiritual gifts from chapters 12, 13 and 14 and the abuse of spiritual gifts. And of course the Corinthians, because they were so self-exalting, they valued the gifts that they had over others. And sandwiched between the, and within the framework of his dealing with spiritual gifts is that glorious chapter, chapter 13, on the subject of love. That if you are to exercise any spiritual gift in the church, then let it be from a heart that is filled with the true definition that he gives of love. And as we have seen, the Apostle Paul has concluded in that magnificent chapter 15, the great doctrine of resurrection. These were all designed by the Apostle Paul to help the Corinthians, to show them their sins, to reveal their, their sinfulness to them, and to uh, help them understand true teaching, what the Bible or what the apostolic doctrine and traditions were respecting these things. The Corinthians therefore needed clarification. They needed help. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been doing in 1 Corinthians. His main goal, you remember, was that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him what? Crucified. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the heart of your entire Christian life. That's the heart of a church. The gospel. The grace of Christ. And that's what he wants the Corinthians to understand as they come together and as they continue in their course. Now the one thing about the apostle, it, even though it must have been difficult for him, 
He tells us that in 2 Corinthians that the anxiety that he had for the churches was always upon him. It was a burden that he bore every day of his life. He prayed for the churches. He wrote to the churches. It wasn't just Corinth that had issues. It was the Romans and the Galatians and the Ephesians and so on. All those churches that he wrote to. Trying to help them. Trying to establish them in the faith. Trying to build them up in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's been doing. And even in the midst of these final, this final chapter, which is taken up with greeting certain people and explaining his travel plans and what he was planning to do, even in the midst of that, he finds the time to say a few things to the Corinthians in closing that are absolutely important, I think, not only to Corinth, but to even ourselves this morning. There are four words that Paul closes with, his final words, four of them. So will you notice with me, first of all, in verse 13, a word of endurance. A word of endurance. Secondly, verse 14, a word of edification. A word of edification. Third, in verse 22, a word of exhortation. Exhortation, a word of exhortation. And finally, will you notice in verse 23 and 24, a word of encouragement. Encouragement. So endurance, edification, exhortation, encouragement. So he begins, and let's begin, verse 13, with Paul's word of endurance. And you can see quite plainly and quite simply that he gives them four ways in which they are to endure, or he asks them to endure. Notice them. Number one, be watchful. Number two, stand firm in the faith. Number three, act like men. Number four, be strong. Four ways in which to endure. Will you notice that all of those words suggest some kind of action? In fact, they are almost soldierly or military-like in their, uh, the words that he uses. All of those words convey the idea of endurance, of enduring. And those, that's something the Corinthians so desperately need. Because it was, it's easy to, when you divide among yourselves, to lose a passion to endure to the end. And so notice what he suggests. Be watching, be standing, be acting, and just be in yourself strong, he says. And all of those words, watching, standing, acting, and being, they suggest, don't they, don't they some activity, some form of doing performing something. And these are words, I think, in the context of this first letter to the Corinthians that the Apostle says them to demonstrate to the Corinthians that he wants them to be a resilient kind of Christian. He wants them to be resolute Christians. I mean, he talks about, doesn't he stand firm in the faith? Be resolute so he is urging, because of the assault of the world and because of the assault of the flesh and Satan's activity against them, he's urging them as a church to be, to be a, a resolute and a firm kind of people, to be uh, this people that are action, active, that are actually going to endure. Now you know there are conflicts among people. There are conflicts among people and believers in the church. There are conflicts in the world, aren't they? When you go to business tomorrow, you might experience conflict in companies. There's certainly conflicts in governments. There's certainly conflicts on the sports field. 
amongst sports players and teams and so on. It's no different with the church. Sooner or later we will discover that there are some things that upset us, that trouble us, and the Corinthians who had experienced all of these things to almost to the nth degree. One thing we can all say about ourselves as Christians is that we are definitely in conflict with the world. It's that which causes us trouble every day and makes us long for heaven, makes us long for the glory of Christ. We are in conflict with the world, we are in conflict with the flesh, and we are in conflict with the great enemy, the dragon himself. One thing I know about conflicts is they require some form of resolution. If there is false doctrine or false teaching in a church, far be it from, from church leaders to ignore false doctrine or false ideas, but to deal with them. They must deal with them. All conflicts require, at some level, whether it's very basic and foundational, leading to much deeper forms of conflict, all require some form of resolution. In one sense, can we not say that the apostle in 1 Corinthians has been aiming at resolution? He wants these Corinthians to resolve their difficulties. And in the doing of that res resolving, he wants them to be like, like men, he says. Act like men. So he gives them these four ways to help them. To help them, by the way, get over themselves. Sometimes people are full of themselves, right? Paul is saying that's what the Corinthians are like. You're full of yourself yourselves. So he's writing to help them get over that, to get on with the business of living according to the gospel of God's grace and living for the glory of God. And that's, by the way, what every believer is required to do, right? We live for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, let it be all done for the glory of God. And so Paul is saying, let me help you Live for God's glory. Let me help you live according to God's wonderful, matchless, marvelous grace. This is how I can help you, and this is what he urges them. Four ways he gives them. Will you notice, by the way, that each of those, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, is an imperative. So here are four commands that the apostle lays upon the Corinthian church right at the end here. So notice, first of all, will you be watchful, he says. Be watchful. What does he mean by that? He means be alert. Be vigilant. This is a military term. I think the NIV makes the, the colloquial translation, be on your guard. Be, be awake. Be alert. Be watchful. The Lord Jesus Christ loved to use that kind of statement. For example, in Matthew 24, the great Olivet Discourse, he says to his disciples, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day or at what hour your Lord may come. Stay awake, or be watchful, be vigilant, be alert. In Matthew 25, in the, great, uh, the, the passage that talks about the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins as Jesus unfolds that passage he says the same thing watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour you can sense that Jesus lays upon them there's, there's an hour and a day coming and you're not ready for it you're not prepared for it be watchful, be alert, be vigilant in fact, he says in the following chapter, Matthew 26, in the very garden of Gethsemane, as his disciples were fast asleep, he said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into what? Temptation. Watch and pray. Be watchful, Jesus is saying to them. 
And to be watchful here, Jesus, it doesn't mean you go outside of your front door and you stand like a sentinel at your front door and you're watching. That's not what he means in the physical sense or in the military sense like that. What he means is that this is a spiritual activity that is engaging your heart and your mind, that you're thinking right and believing right and acting right. And so spiritually you are to be a vigilant, watchful Christian. That means you watch against spiritual enemies, spiritual attacks. Be watchful, he says. The Corinthians were exposed, weren't they, to so many spiritual struggles. The enemy was working in them and through them, and they were yielding to their flesh and so on. They needed to be vigilant and to be watchful against those spiritual enemies, Paul says. We always have to be vigilant against false teachers, false prophets in the Old Testament. You always have to be vigilant and watchful against false doctrine, which comes from the false teachers. How do you be vigilant? How do you be watchful? Be constantly on alert. Be constantly on alert. Now I confess to you, you know, there are some days when I do not think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to my shame. You have days like that? You have busy days? You go through the day and you haven't given a thought to, you know, Jesus could come right now for his people. Are we watching? Are we watchful? Paul says, be constantly alert because if you're not alert, you will be overcome. If you're not watching, you will be overtaken. You will be uh, caught unaware. So be aware, he says, of danger to your spiritual life. That's the first thing. Be watchful. Notice secondly, what does he say? Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. The word stand firm there means to stand fast. Don't move your ground. Don't give an inch. But stand firm. Don't be easily swayed by whatever is out there, by false ideas and teachings and so on. In fact, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by a letter. Hold firm, he says. Stand firm. Hold to the traditions that I gave you. Apostolic teaching. Apostolic traditions even. And notice... When Paul says stand firm, he qualifies it, doesn't he? He says in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Paul urged the Galatian uh, churches when he was leaving them on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, he said to those Galatian Christians as he passed through uh, those small towns, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, Lydia, and so on, as he went his way back with with Barnabas, he said to them, continue in the faith. There are many people who have started in the faith, who have professed belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have not gone on and continued. And that raises the question, well, what kind of faith did they have? And what was it that happened whenever they said something happened that they have now abandoned and turned from? No, it's a very serious thing when Paul says, stand firm in the faith. And in Acts chapter 16, it says that the, the, the people were strengthened in their faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are what? In the faith. 
Test yourselves, Paul says. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. Established in the faith. Are you, dear brother and sister, standing firm in the faith? That implies you know what you believe. Right? The faith. The faith, of course, having to do with what I believe, the body of truth, apostolic doctrine, the doctrine of the Word of God. I'm standing firm in that faith. This is not, you know, the idea that you often hear uh, associated with politics today about faith and family and freedom. I don't think there's a, there's, a more, uh, there's a phrase that I dislike more than that kind of idea. Faith, family, and freedom. Because I know what they mean by that. That's not what the Bible means. When it talks about faith and family and freedom. Our freedom is in Jesus. Not to do as we please. Lead quiet lives. That's what we're supposed to do. Instead we're all over the place promoting God... And I wonder, what do they know about God? What God do they mean? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have yet to hear in one political rendering that we are doing this because we love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we love Jesus Christ. I've never heard that. But it's all about faith. And therefore, it's not all about family. And those are all good things, make no mistake. But we are being deceived. By those kinds of ideas. Because what do you mean by faith? Is it this faith? Or is it the idea that we are morally good people, morally upright people, therefore, therefore we believe in God. It's a generic kind of faith. That's not the faith of, of a Christian. No, our faith resolves itself finally on Jesus and who Jesus is and what He has done at the cross for us. So that the gospel is about that faith. And that's what Paul says. I want you to stand firm in the faith. Or as he says elsewhere, the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints, to God's people. So, brother and sister, are you standing firm in the faith? Thirdly, notice verse 13, act like men. Act like men. Now, you know, I recall as a teenager saying to somebody else, you know, Get a grip on your life. Right? Act like a man. Right? You know, you mean pick yourself up and don't be, don't be weak. Don't vacillate. Act like a man. Conveying the idea of some strength of character. So here's a word to be courageous, right? In fact, the New King James says be brave. Be brave. That's the idea. Every believer needs courage, right? Courage to face disappointment. Courage to handle rejection. Courage to handle persecution. Courage to live with pain. And to live with sorrow. And to live with suffering. We need that. I mean, it was God in the Old Testament who said specifically to Joshua, as they had crossed the, about to crossing the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land, Joshua, be courageous. Act like a man. Lead these people. Take them across. Moses has done his work. Now here's your work. Be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do all the law. And do not turn, he says, from the left to, to the left or to the right. For then you will be prosperous and then you will know or have good success. Be courageous. Act like men. 
I've discovered that it does require courage to stand on God's word. To say, this is what I believe. Not only to stand on God's word, but to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It takes courage to do that, right? Act like men. Show yourself, Paul says to the Corinthians, to be this kind of individual. Act like a man. Be courageous. And then finally, you'll notice he says his final word of endurance, he says, be strong. If you read the Latin translation, the Vulgate, it uses a rather interesting word to describe what Paul says here, be strong. The, the, the Latin translation uses the word for to fortify yourself. To fortify yourself. Now, you know, I remember as a child, whenever the new vitamin drinks came out, it was always designed to fortify yourself, right? Fortification. To be reinforced is the idea. To be, to be strong. To be, to be like ha- having a, a steel pole down your backbone. Strong. Unbending. Fortified. In other words, this is spiritual strength that he's urging upon the Corinthians. By the way, spiritual strength is really a reflection of spiritual maturity. It takes time to develop strength. Have you ever tried it? Start lifting 100 pounds weights just when you've never lifted one. You'll soon discover that it's very difficult. You need to start with 5. And then 10 as you get stronger. And then 50. And then 100. And maybe more as you develop strength. Strength doesn't happen in the spiritual realm overnight. It requires time. It requires exercise. So that spiritual maturity is something that's down the line. Never immediate in someone who's just confessed faith in the Lord Jesus. They need to fortify themselves over time. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. To be strong speaks of something I've accomplished now. I've arrived at this position of strength. And here I'm going to stand as it were. Isn't that how Luther stood when he, when he said, Here I stand. He has arrived at this position and this conviction on the word of God and I can do no other. Here I stand. Here I resolve myself. He just didn't do that overnight. It took time to develop that kind of reinforcement and fortification. And one thing I do know is without strength, work does not get done. We need strength, spiritual strength. Oh, dear congregation, listen. We live in a day of spiritual vacillation. We live in a day of spiritual weakness. When men are no longer men as they ought to be spiritually, whether it's in the home or in business or wherever it is, as Christian men, I mean. We need strength. And so too do all our sisters as well. They have work to do in their families, in their homes. Strength. Be strong, Paul says. In other words, Paul says, as he says these four things here in verse 13, he's urging the Corinthians that let your life be characterized by these kinds of spiritual characteristics. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Watch yourself. Watch your life. Watch what you believe. And know what you believe. And don't move from the truth is what Paul says. I do know that I cannot arm myself with partial armor, the partial armor of God, but the whole armor of God. 
And only when I've armed myself with the whole armor of God, stand firm. Stand. Right? So it's, we show by life our convictions to be based solidly on the Word of God. You see, that's what Paul wants them to do. Come back to my, the, the, the traditions. Come back to the apostolic doctrine. Come back to the Word of God and, and resolve your life, you Corinthians, on that. And you Sarasotans, 2,000 years, same idea. Resolve your entire life on God and God's Word. So, a word of endurance, right? We need it in our time. Second, verse 14, word of edification. Let everything or let all that you do be done in love, he says. Our love is the great thing, isn't it? It's the binding attitude. It's the greatest motivator. To love, uh, according to the scripture, would be to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved and gave and sacrificed all those ideas are, are involved in what it means to love. It involves sacrifice, it involves service, it involves the giving of yourself completely. Something that the Corinthians were lacking in and not willing to do. Because they wanted their own way, their own ideas. Notice what Paul says, right? Verse 14. Let all, all that you do, all work, all relationships, all activities, whatever it is you engage in throughout the week, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Let it be characterized, suffused with this love. In other words, make sure that your attitudes, make sure that your actions, make sure that all of those are governed by this character, this quality, attribute, love. Love is so powerful, isn't it, that it repels bitterness. It overcomes bitterness, doesn't it? It removes animosity. It heals factions and divisions in the Corinthian church if they will do this. In fact, love surely is the best medicine of all because it binds together. And it requires work. As you know, love is, love is not just the emotional feeling that we sometimes call, most times might call love. No, love is the deliberate acting of your will to commit yourself to love someone else. And love is never about what you say, is it? Love is always about what you do. That's why Paul says, let all that you do be done. He says, in this way, be done in love. Do you know at the love feasts, the agape feasts in Corinth, there in their agape feasts, as Charles Hodge says, they were fountains of bitterness. Can you imagine coming tonight to the Lord's Supper with fountains of bitterness among us as a people? No. And Paul has spoken greatly on love, hasn't he, in this epistle? Think of chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and on and on he goes, Right? And at the end of that great chapter, in chapter 13, he says, So faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. And in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Love builds up, love edifies. That's the word, love builds up. Chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Pursue love, and then the gifts. Pursue love above all things. Now, how do you do that? You must look for ways to pursue love, to show love, to demonstrate love. 
That's what Paul simply says. Verse 14, let all that you do, as he speaks this word of edification to them, let all that you do be done in love, because love is what holds everything together, and love is that which provides a solid foundation on which to grow and to learn and to work and to serve. Well, that brings us to the third word. Look at verse 22. A word of exhortation. If anyone, notice how the, the love theme continues. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Do you know the Bible says over and over again a number of times that love for Christ or love for God is proven by love for one another? I mean, isn't the royal law we can say to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, which James and Paul bring down to love your neighbor. That to love my neighbor as myself is to love God, is to fulfill the royal law, is to fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, to not have love is to say, I do not have Christ. Notice the text, if anyone has no love for the Lord let him be accursed, he says. That's why Paul says it the way he does love for the Lord. But isn't it those final words that are somber? Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. That's the word, anathema. In fact, anathema is the strongest word there is for pronouncing a curse or a malediction. So Jesus often said, you know, things like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, a pronouncing of, of doom, a pronouncing of judgment upon them. But when you say something like anathema, you are pronouncing a curse that is beyond all other curses. This is the nth degree cursing. Judgment. And so Paul says, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Now I want, you know, Jason preached on this uh, quite a long time ago in Galatians 1, verse 8 and 9, but just think for a moment about what is preached today. There are so many other kinds of gospels. The Apostle Paul says, you preach any other gospel than the one I preach to you? the one that was shown me by revelation, you start declaring other ideas, let that person be anathema. Let them be accursed, he says. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, no one ever speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is anathema, Jesus is cursed. No one ever says that, can't do that. So anathema is to hand someone over to the ultimate divine wrath, a binding oath with frightening consequences. It's worse than, than saying of yourself, woe is me, I am undone. It's far beyond that. It's far beyond that. In fact, Calvin says that truly there is nothing more pernicious than those who prostitute a profession of piety to their own depraved affections. You know, it's entirely possible that Corinth, like any other church in the ancient world, and like any church in the modern world, had wolves in sheep's clothing among them. It's quite possible, right? 
who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have no affection for him, and no affection, by the way, because they are wolves for the sheep, for the people of God. How is it that we are known to be Christians? By our love for one another. The wolf doesn't care about that. He is interested in devouring, consuming. He's hungry. He's rapacious. He wishes to destroy. The wolf only comes like a thief, bent on destruction, spiritual destruction. And Corinth was filled with destructive thoughts and destructive ideas. And Paul says, got to clear that out. I've got to help you to be right. So he says here, if anyone has no love for the Lord, it's hard to imagine. Right? Because we all profess, I'm sure, that we love the Lord Jesus Christ, but so too did Judas. Ah, for a while, Judas was well known among the disciples as a disciple. But in the end, he was a son of destruction. So Paul says, if anyone has no love for Jesus, let him be anathema. So Paul gives this final compelling word, doesn't he, to the Corinthians, of promised judgment to anyone who does not demonstrate love for Christ, does not show love for Christ. If we love the Lord Jesus, we love one another. We love those whom Jesus loves. And that leads Paul to make, in verse 22, his second statement of exhortation. There's just one word in the English, Maranatha, but in our translation it might say, yours might say, our Lord come. It's actually two words in the Greek text, Maran and Atha, our Lord come. It's interesting to me that you read Calvin and you read Luther and both of them see this statement, Maranatha, as a word of excommunication. Because he's just pronounced the person who has no love for Jesus to be accursed, a judgment. Therefore, Maranatha is a comment on that statement, a word of excommunication. But I think it's much better to see this not as a word of excommunication, but a word of eschatology. A word of eschatology. Our Lord, come. The Lord is coming. Make sure you love Christ. That's the admonition. That's, this is not a word of immediate judgment, excommunication. This is a word of impending judgment, eschatology, when Jesus comes. And you see, this is the interesting thing about our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he is filled with tenderness and he is filled with mercy and he loves and he shows that and he demonstrates that. But when you begin to spurn and spurn and reject and reject and reject, the time comes when he may, the Son of God, say, enough. You have what you want. Isn't that Romans chapter 1? God gave them over. And there's no grace then. There's only anathema. An anathema when Maranatha takes place when Jesus comes. So anathema becomes reality at Maranatha. This severe judgment. The sheep and the goats shall be divided, won't they? At Maranatha 
when our Lord comes. Oh, this is a strong warning. Notice how how Paul, as he gets to the end, he just reminds them again by warning passages like this to think right, to think like verse 13 and verse 14, a strong, solemn warning. Because to refuse to love Jesus, meaning to refuse to love God's people, is an act of reprobation ultimately. It's anathema. So Paul exhorts the Corinthians. It's an exhortation to recognize the lordship of Jesus among them. Isn't that what we should be doing always when we gather together? To recognize that among us, Jesus is here and he is the Lord Jesus Christ, our sovereign, our savior among us. I think it's a great test for any congregation. Is Jesus among us? Is Jesus with you? Finally, there's a word of encouragement. Look at verse 23 and 24. A word of encouragement. Just two things, Paul says, I want you Corinthians to think about, that he wants us to think about. Number one, I want you to think about the grace of Jesus. And number two, I want you to think about my love for you, for the Corinthians. Verse 24. So grace, of course, is such a prominent article in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was a man of hate. He was a man of blasphemy. He was a man who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And he is transformed by divine grace. Not by his own power, not by his own act of will. And what a man he was, highly educated, and yet he is not saved by that. He is saved by what? By grace. Just as all of us are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why grace is so prominent, isn't it, in Paul's letters. You always read about grace, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has experienced that grace for himself. He's changed his life. When you read the epistle to the Romans, Paul says in the epistle to the Romans, you know, everybody's a sinner. And he proves that, doesn't he? Every single human being is a sinner, but then he says, God justifies sinners. God saves sinners. And how does he justify them? By his grace. Freely. No demands asked of them. He just justifies them because the righteousness of Jesus stands for them. And when we come to see that, faith is the response to that. Faith latches hold of this imputed righteousness of Jesus, this obedience of Christ. We lay hold of the cross work of Jesus. And we are recipients then of grace, not because of ourselves and not by anything in and of ourselves, but by the will of God. So every step you take in your Christian life, dear brother and sister, every single step is by grace. Because you see, grace destroys human pride. It reduces us to humility, doesn't it? It destroys this pride and it magnifies the freedom of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God. That's what it does. Can we not say this morning that at the heart of the gospel or at the heart of my Christian life is grace? I am what I am by the grace of God. We often say, there go I, but for the grace of God. I mean, everything about us is Christ and is graced. 
grace. And that's the Corinthians, all because of Jesus. They have come to experience faith in Him. In Him we have redemption, Paul says, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7. So grace is big, isn't it? We should always thank the Lord for grace. Finally, notice Paul, he assures the Corinthians of his love for them. Verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Never separated from Jesus. My love is in Christ Jesus for you all. Isn't that the love we share with each other this morning? Our love for each other is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul loved the Corinthians. Why? Because Jesus loved him. And my love then, for you, he says, is in Christ Jesus. He's motivated by grace, the grace of God to love. So here, here dear congregation, are Paul's final words. Right? I want you to be vigilant in your life. Be vigilant, he says. That's, that's really verse 13. I want you to be faithful in your love. I want you to be serving and be, be loving as, as I have been to you. Now have you begun in faith, dear brother and sister? When did you confess and know in your heart that you were born from above? When did you experience the new birth? Because Jesus said, unless we're born again, we will never see, never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we resolve ourselves to that time when we said, when we know that we came to Jesus. And Jesus took us to himself and embraced us in his love and in his grace. And salvation was the result. And we were new creatures in Christ. And now we go forward, do we not, in obedience and faith. Trusting in God and His grace. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to do. Now I ask myself, what can I take home from 1 Corinthians? This whole epistle. Well, here's one thing. As in all things, Christ is the answer for everything. If you come up with some answer and Jesus is not in it, sorry, no good. Maybe good common sense or something else. No good if you're going to resolve your spiritual life on it. Resolve your life on Jesus. The answer to our sins, the answer to our faith, the answer to our Christian life, the answer to our families, the answer to your work, life. Christ is the answer for everything. That's the first thing. That's what Paul says. I want you to have Christ. Second thing, we are ambassadors for Christ. If Christ is ours, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means a number of things. Number one, it means I'm a herald of the gospel. I share the gospel. I'm a herald of the gospel. Number two, I'm a lover of the truth. I love the truth. The truth of God's word. We are disciples of love. You know, a disciple is a student. Someone who studies something. We must study love. The love of Jesus so that we can love each other. We are disciples of love. And finally, we are envoys of peace. The peace of God is proclaimed in the gospel. Men and women, sinners, can have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's what the gospel has done for you, Corinthians. That's what the gospel has done for us 2,000 years later. Because it's the same gospel, and it's the same cross work, and it's the same Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, no Christ, whom to know is everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these final words of the Apostle Paul so long ago when he urges the Corinthians at the end of this great epistle to, to just resolve themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who made himself poor for our sakes so that we might become rich. That's grace. Thank you for the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. Thank you, Father, for loving us in your Son. And thank you for the cross, the giving of your Son. And thank you for the empty tomb and the resurrection from the dead and the exaltation of your Son to your right hand to bring us to yourself. Oh, help us to be the kind of church we ought to be, to find that Jesus is the answer for everything and we are ambassadors for Christ. Help us to be watchful and to be strong and to stand firm in the faith and to act like men. Help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ because anyone who doesn't is anathema. And oh, how we long for the day of Maranatha, our Lord, come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus then be with us and in us today, and may our love then be for one another and for our Savior as well. Thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.